The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. When it comes to culture, there are few elements of a society over the last few decades that have left a more meaningful impact than the world of video games. Even fewer have had the effect of the Halo franchise. As a military science fiction enterprise, it's gigantic. The franchise, now managed and developed by 343 Industries and owned by Xbox Game Studios, focuses on the experience of Master Chief Sierra 117 one of a group of super soldiers codenamed Spartans and his artificial intelligence companion. It's about interstellar war between humanity and an alliance of aliens known as the Covenant. But the effect on the games is out of this world. Record-breaking sales. By 2021, Halo had sold 81 million copies worldwide, with the games alone grossing more than $3 billion, one of the highest-grossing media franchises of all times. And those strong sales led to an expansion, novels, comic books, short movies, and as of this week, a series on Paramount+. Plus. In fact, I'm counting on it. We're lost in the dark. But you give people hope. At the center of it all is a woman who is a force all of her own, Kiki Wolfkill. As a video game developer who considered journalism before video games, she's the keeper of the flame, having worked her way through Microsoft's video game world, which appropriately included the racing series Midtown Madness and Project Gotham. It was appropriate because Wolfkill is a car lover at heart, first learning to drive at 13. By the time she got to college, she was already racing the Sports Car Club of America Club Racing Series, winning its Northwest Region ITS Championship one year. She's been a road racer, she's been involved in Porsche Club Racing Circles, and she's even been a teacher. And since 2008, after joining 343 Industries, she's overseeing the Halo franchise transmedia. Kiki Wolfkill is a force. Less than a decade ago, Fortune called her one of the 10 most powerful women in gaming. Five years ago, Fast Company called her one of business's most creative people. Today, the Halo franchise takes on a whole new platform, as the multi-decade process of attempting to adapt the Halo juggernaut culminates in the release on Paramount+. Car racer, car lover, creative mind, and now thrilled to have her own enterprise launch today. Kiki Wolfkill is my guest. I'm Kiki Wolfkill, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. What a pleasure to welcome you to the show, Kiki Thank you for being on Cars and Culture. Oh my gosh, it, the pleasure is all mine. I uh, I don't get to talk about cars and motorsports and sort of that side of my um, of my life very much. So it is it is a thrill to be here. Thank you. Well, Kiki, what a pleasure to have you on the program. You're our first gamer. I mean, this is this is as cool as this show gets. Certainly you've had other gamers. You just didn't know maybe they were gamers. <laughs> That's probably true. Yes, I have a more visible uh, 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 gaming life than perhaps others, but there's a lot of us out there. I'm, I'm sure there are, and we're going to talk about all of them who are watching you at all times. Let's also talk about your recent big news, and all you had to do was watch the halftime of the AFC Championship uh, game recently, uh, where the trailer was unveiled for the Halo TV series. So it wasn't just the Bengals and the Chiefs, but it was also Kiki Wolfkill and your own production with your team. How gratifying was that for you to see that come on at that time? And I, I've got to believe the journey has been has been long and very grateful I, and, and very gratifying and grateful. Yeah, all of, all of those things. It has been a long journey. Um, you know, I think uh, A, things in Hollywood take longer, I think, than I'm used to on the video gaming side um, and be doing something kind of at this scope and scale and that people 
who are Halo fans have been waiting for means really making sure we're right, waiting for all of the right pieces to come together. Um, you know, uh, that AFC championship game and seeing and seeing that trailer come up was, was almost surreal. Um, you know, of course I got the call from my mother in the morning, um, having seen the trailer for the trailer, you've made it when you have a trailer for the trailer. Um, <laughs> I like to think, um, and, uh, you know, she still is not quite sure what I do. She knows I'm associated with halo. Um, uh, my mother's 91, um, uh, God love her. Um, so she yeah, I think, the game, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got the call from her and yeah, it's been a long journey. It's been, um, you said gratifying. It's been incredibly gratifying because it's been hard and because I've learned a lot, um, because I'm, I'm really proud of what we were able to do together. Um, I'm excited about, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there's a season two and we can do better than we did on season one. Cause, um, I sort of always approach things that way. Um, but you know, we still have to, um, you know, get the show fully out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a hard, awesome road. Now that we're into launch mode and, and even just this week, uh, the, the, the game is out of the bag, the cat's out of the bag and the TV series is here. Take me back to the, the gestation of the idea. It's one thing to have a video game property that's been enormously successful. And we're going to get into the development of that and some of your history behind it. But to go from that to a television series must have been a very unique journey. What, what was it that, that was perhaps uh, arduous about it and or, you know, what were your learning moments? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been in video games for uh, a long time. I came up through the art and the visual storytelling side. Um, my personal passion in games is uh, sort of the, the medium as a unique way of telling story and, and the narrative structure of inhabiting a character, right, versus watching a character on the screen. Um, and at the same time, you know, especially coming up in game development, you know, in the in the 90s, you're sort of always on the forefront of graphics technology. And back then, movies and television like was where it was at, like games was kind of like the little, um, the little cousin, if you will, or, or um, stepchild, if you will, uh, of movies and, and television. And so I think it's also always been a, a goal for me to really help elevate the medium of video games. Um, I started with doing that more on the art side and thinking about game art as a viable um, art form, but that also extends to storytelling, right? And so I feel like games and, and movie and TV have always sort of skirted around each other because they are about taking um, a viewer or player on a journey. Uh, but I think it's only been recently that, that Hollywood has sort of embraced that games have a really huge impact on their audience, right? And that's ultimately what we all set out to do. How do we, how do we bring audiences into our world and have them participate and, and, and have those worlds be something they wanna to continue to be in, involved in? Um, so that was a very long answer for, it's taken a while for Hollywood to actually embrace video games um, as something that is interesting to build on. And I think, what they found is there are vast worlds and histories and stories and characters that people are really emotionally attached to. And so the opportunity to tell more stories in a linear form uh, is super interesting. Well, in fact, you were part of that video game movement that went from that, you know, the first person shooter origins to an increasingly film-like narrative structure and had Ridley Scott as executive producer on Halo Nightfall. And he was also involved in some original live action, um, other digital series, Xbox Live, he was involved in as well. Mm -hmm. So you were starting this movement to take it from what was just the game console and the game into that narrative. And now the extension of that is, is real. Yeah, I think, I think I've, I've always had a very core belief that, that uh, video game worlds and, and IPs had a whole other life they could sort of live outside of the game and the area i'm i'm uh, responsible for 343 for halo is is transmedia is how do we tell stories across different mediums 
optimizing those stories and that narrative structure for that medium as a way to give people more, right? It's both, how do you, how do you give people more of what they want of terms of immersion in a world, but how do you also bring in new audience? Because some different, some mediums are, are more accessible for different kinds of audience than others. And um, we, we, you know, we took a few steps with Halo in the animated space, in the um, anime space, in live action. And I think that the TV series was sort of that times a thousand, to be honest, in, in mm -hmm. scope and scale. Um, and, you know, I, I, I credit, I credit um, Showtime and Amblin, um, who are partners. Steven Spielberg has been involved with this since the beginning, and he is actually a big um, video game fan and very knowledgeable. Um, and he was the one who was really initially interested in doing something with us. And, and we then right. took it to Showtime and it grew from there. And so now it becomes a challenge of, wow, we, you actually got the thing that you asked for. Now, how do you do it right? And that's a whole different set of challenges. Your child is growing up for sure. And when, what a baby it was when it was born. Halo 4, when it was launched, had 220 million sales on the first day that it was released in 2012 on Xbox 360 which is crazy, only to be outdone by Halo 5, which set a record <laughs> of $500 million in the first week on the market. So now, you know, you're, you're into just these other iterations of what was originally created. Does any of this stuff surprise you anymore? The velocity around things like video games? You know, I, uh, they don't. For me, it's, it's sort of been long overdue that the power of of play and the power of shared experience and the power of that kind of storytelling is incredibly uh, accessible, right? I think people always thought about video games as this sort of, you know, dudes in, in their basement, um, which certainly represents a, a large part of the population. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think people realized, um, you know, how, how accessible um, games are. And, and, you know, I said kind of at the top that, you know, a lot of people are gamers who don't necessarily self-identify as gamers, but they are, right? When you pick up your mobile phone and you're playing something on your phone, that's all about that, that play experience. So, you know, you add on to that, the level of engagement you get from interacting with something and accomplishing something um, and sort of progressing in a game and add to that a narrative that many games um, provide. And it doesn't, you know, the scope and scale doesn't surprise me of what the business is like because it, it's kind of an incredible medium. And then you add, you know, VR and, and that aspect to gaming and that just adds a whole nother um, dimension to it. Well, and we're going to get to cars here in a moment, but talk about culture, the video game culture, the impact on culture. It's defining, isn't it, Kiki? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, you know, it kind of gets back to everyone is a gamer, right? So the cultural impact, especially when you have a game experience, you know, we see this with Halo, we've seen this with other games, you know, in the past, something like a Fortnite, you know, that touches tens and tens of millions of people all over the world. And think about the magnitude of water cooler experience you have when you have that many people, not just having the same experience, but often playing together as well, right? And that's the kind of effect, you know, in, in linear media, often you'll have sort of these event-driven moments. Video games are constant event. It's a nonstop event, right? And so you kind of get that, that magnitude and momentum of conversation uh, all happening at the same time across the world. And, and so it's almost impossible for it not to become a lifestyle or, or really a key part of pop culture. I want to get into some of your history. Uh, you did an internship with one of Paul Allen's multimedia companies making digital videos for their multimedia screensavers. Yes. Right? The yes. I'm literally 75 years old. You've just <laughs> outed me. <laughs> and, and you took your analog filmmaking skills to the digital platform. And when that internship ended, someone was giving a talk on video compression. And you approached the lecturer afterward, and you gave him your resume. 
And it turned out they had a contract position that was open at Microsoft. And you started working on digital video projects in their media lab. And then you get into games. How did you get into games? And I know yeah. there's a cross here with racing, your other passion. <laughs> uh, I will say I've been very, very lucky in how opportunities have um, sort of surfaced and how they've crossed paths with, with passions of mine. Um, yeah, I started, uh, so once I, I uh, really kind of got into the digital video realm, um, A, it sort of unlocked my creativity in terms of what you can do as soon as you broke out of that sort of uh, that linear way of thinking in terms of editing and, and creating story. Um, it was kind of mind blowing for me. And that was when I really got hooked on sort of the technology behind creativity. Um, and so I started, uh, you know, I, I learned uh, Avid editing and compositing and Flint and Flame and a lot of these sort of um, uh, post tools and started doing work, making um, cinematics for the micro, some of the Microsoft games. Um, and I was already a gamer. And I think back then you didn't really classify yourself as a gamer or not. You either, you know, were a kid who had a console um, or a PC or not. Um, Cause if you had either, you were playing games, uh, but it was oh, you really, were, you were playing doom for PC. I was, I was playing after work <laughs> on a daily basis and you love Tomb Raider too. Yes. Yeah. I, so for me, and it's funny because my television viewing and book reading and video gaming are similar. Um, I love adventure. Um, uh, I clearly love um, first person uh, games. Um, I like really visceral experiences um, and I like the pacing. So uh, I was immediately drawn to making games because again, it was really the forefront of where um, technology and creativity were coming together. And at the time when I got into games, it was really hard to make games. You didn't have a lot of graphics power, right? So you had to be really creative about how you made things look good. Um, and I think that kind of challenge was, was, um, was a place I, I thrived in, um, having sort of those constraints and always trying to push the edge of it um, was really exciting for me. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I, uh, I was working on uh, uh, some animations for cart precision racing, which was um, our, our cart racing simulator. Uh, and they had uh, called the local racing school where I was teaching as well, because um, that meant free track time for me. <laughs> Paltry pay and free track time. Uh, and they were at looking for a subject matter expert for their racing school component, working with, of all subject matter experts, Bobby Rahal on this uh, racing school component. And they said, you know, you actually have someone in your, you know, at Microsoft already, not even knowing that I was already working on the animation side. So that's kind of when that all came together, came together for me. The two interests merged, agreed. And the funny thing about you, even in the gaming side is, you weren't even really good at math when you were growing up. <laughs> you now know, all of a sudden you're right in the middle of this, you know, yeah. game, game creation, including working on, by the way, Microsoft Encarta, which I had forgotten about that digital mm. encyclopedia. You were involved in flight simulator, yeah. rail sport challenge, all kinds of things. Yeah. I will say, um, uh, cause I worked in racing games for quite a while, quite a while. Um, uh, Rally Sport Challenge is probably still one of my favorite games that I've ever worked on. I love rally racing. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the challenges in working in video games uh, early on, um, again, as you're pushing the graphics technology is really nailing that sense of speed. And as soon as you get into something like a, a, a rally game, that becomes even more challenging. Um, but I just have to throw that out there for Rally Sport because it's still one of my the favorite racing games that I've worked on. Including... Midtown Madness is another one that you were involved in. Project Gotham Racing. And most people might not know that your brother, Kim, mm -hmm. was the creator of Forza Motorsport, that whole franchise. Well, so um, a little bit of it. So uh, Kim actually joined Forza a little bit later. His, of course, big claim to fame um, 
although he has more at a very personal level, uh, is um, as editor-in-chief for Road and Track um, for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But yeah, he had, uh, he joined um, the Forza team a little bit later on uh, and was helping sort of develop their their car and and partner relationships and all of that and um, contributed a a ton to that franchise. is at a critical time for, for their business too, which is great. Now, some people listening to this might say, well, how in the world does, you know, someone involved in gaming even end up at tracks or as an instructor or anything else? But I want to go back to a really interesting story. First of all, you grew up on a farm, um, <laughs> which um, I, I would imagine the, the freedom of a farm would give you all kinds of um uh, the ability to come up with the notion that you wanted to do something very creative because there's a lot of, you know, creative time, right? Uh, well, while there, but a Chinese mother who was a race car driver herself, a Pennsylvania father of Dutch heritage, who, by the way, knew Steve McQueen extremely well. <laughs> Steve McQueen was your father's best man in his wedding. How yes. in the world did that happen? Yes. I, um, uh, my brother and I definitely come from uh, very adventurous parents. Uh, and yeah, we had an amazing childhood. We grew up um, in Pennsylvania on a farm. It, it, uh, it wasn't a working farm. I think my father uh, probably settled us there because it had a couple really big barns, which he then used to put all of his cars into. Um, so, we, so no cattle, just there just, was you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing but cars and a couple Labradors um, and us kids. But it was an incredible place to grow up in it. You know, it was in that golden age when, you know, you walked out the door and they said to be home by dinner. And, you know, God knows what you were up to um, in the time in between. But we were we were just sort of adventuring around all the time. And we had a lot of freedom um, and uh, a lot of independence. Uh, and yeah, our, uh, we grew up around motorsports. My father raced extensively in the fifties and sixties. Um, he has a, a storied history, um, at the Macau Grand Prix, uh, the stories about cars that he could tell and, and the cars he would acquire, you know, the Porsche 550, he bought new from Porsche and ordered, um, and the price tags that used to be associated with those cars. Um, you know, we grew up, we grew up with that. We grew up with, with race car drivers, friend as friends, our family vacations were being stuffed in the back of a nine of 11 and driving to road Atlanta or Lime Rock or mid Ohio. Um, so that was just sort of, sort of the culture of our home. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember vividly my father running in to the house after work, um, and looking out the kitchen window to watch the cop cars going by um, as he <laughs> evaded them from his, uh, again, back in the day when you could, you could do that. Um, <laughs> you know, that was, that was just how we, how we grew up. And so um, driving, I, I learned to drive very young. I've always loved it. My you were father, 13. Yeah. My father would, would take us, you know, out to the church parking lot when it was snowing and, and uh, pull up the e-brake to teach us how to drive in the snow. Uh, and so it just, it, it just sort of part of the language of, of my youth, I would say. And Kiki, your father had his own very interesting story. An ex-Marine and an NBC News cameraman in Southeast Asia awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Kennedy after surviving 15 months as a prisoner in Laos. Yeah. It actually led to you wanting to make documentaries that you, you pursued journalism at the University of Washington. You're, yeah. you're, you're the first journalist to ever <laughs> create a world-renowned game and now TV series. Well, I, you know, admittedly, I started the broadcast. I, I um, had studied Chinese history. I started the broadcast journalism degree because I wanted to learn camera work and I wanted to learn how to edit. Um, and it was all analog at the time. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I learned photography at a young age as well, um, because that was my father's background. Um, uh, you mentioned Steve McQueen earlier, uh, my, 
the, the best man at my parents' wedding. They got married in his house. They had actually met in Steve McQueen's house. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, they had actually met, I think, and I'll probably hack this story up a little bit, but they met at a gas station in like the desert um, somewhere in Nevada or something. And they were both gassing up uh, or I think, I think Steve McQueen was working on sand pebbles was shooting sand pebbles. So where, wherever they shot that and they just started shooting the shit about cars. Mm. Right. And I don't remember what my dad was driving, but there was something where they just sort of immediately connected. And um, I think they both had a very um, sort of adventurous and somewhat rebellious spirit. Um, but it was cars that they connected on. The rebellious spirit that carried down to you because <laughs> you started taking the track on a regular basis. And in college, you started racing. You were about 24, 25 years old. You placed second in the Sports Car Club of America Club Racing. The following year, you won the Northwest Region ITS Championship. And you've maintained the, you know, the Porsche Club things, the racing studios, things. Racing to you, what did that mean? Was it the competitive side of it that was the most attractive? Ooh. I think there's a few things that were attractive. You know, I, um, I think part of it, uh, I mean, no question. I'm, I'm a competitive person. I love competition, right? Not just participating. I love the spirit of competition. I can pretty much watch anything compete. And if it's a good competition, I'm in. Um, uh, so that was definitely part of it. Uh, another big part of it for me though, is, uh, a, I love driving, but I also, I'm so intrigued and drawn to uh, to activities that sort of require mastery, right? And not that mastery is every, ever something I will get to, but I love the pursuit of it. And so with the driving and the racing, it both was a very personal challenge. Um, you know, I ended up doing primarily endurance racing. My brother and I did some races um, as well together. Uh, with Motorola Cup and um, a few other series. And what I loved is it was such a physical and mental challenge. And on top of that, there's the skill of just the, the car control and understanding the car. And then on top of that is the competition, right? And I think that a lot of the, the, the mental tenacity required to, to be a good competitor or a top competitor. And so I think all of those things really made it something that I just, I just loved. And then I will also say it requires such extreme focus that in some ways it's almost meditative for me because I, I can, I literally can only afford to think about that and what the car is doing, what I'm doing um, and clearing my head of everything else um, is something that's really uh, important to me. It's a release for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How much time do you get to race these days? How much time do you spend on the track? Yeah, well, in a in a good and because I'm in Seattle, so we don't have a year long season. Um, but in a good season, you know, I'm, I get to get out there eight to ten times a year. Um, I was in Budapest for most of last year, uh, shooting season one of the show. So uh, I got a few little forays out in in Budapest, not at Hungaro Ring, but that's for. A hopeful season too. Um, uh, so yeah, so my my poor car um, sat fallow uh, this past summer, but but we'll get back to it. You want like it's just it's part of who I am, right? I I took a break for a while because I was just so busy, and I just realized that I felt like there was something of myself missing. Yeah, I want to go back to one of the one of your more illustrious racing moments. 2002, you took part in the gumball rally race from New York to Los Angeles, seated behind the wheel of an Xbox styled mini Cooper. You finished 12th ahead of many of your fellow drivers who were in Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches. It had to have been a very special moment for you. Oh, it was so much fun. Uh, it was, um, and you know, uh, funnily enough, my parents actually took part in the original cannonball, the last one that was held in 79 with Brock Yates. Um, so I grew up with that experience as well. Wow. Uh, but the gumball was great. And, you know, what was fun about it is being, and it was when the mini had first come out, right? So it sort of had that 
that phenomena like the 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 new Volkswagen Beetle did when it first came out. Like people were just delighted at the sight of it. Um, but it also I had enough of it actually. Yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough that um, Minnie got us the first one to come into the East Coast for this event. Um, but really, like maybe a tenth of the power of any other car in the field. But kind of a sleeper because you know when you're out in the middle of nowhere and a cop has the choice between stopping a little silver box or stopping a red Ferrari, <laughs> 10 we out know of 10. Which car is going to go yes, down. <laughs> yes. So it was amazing because it turned out to be um, a very stealth choice. And aside from the fact that it, it took about 10 minutes to get up to speed, um, it was because it, it wasn't even an S, it was a pure Mini Cooper. Um, so my rule was just, you just never get off the gas. I treated every gas stop like a pit stop. Get to the floor. Yeah. You just never stop because you don't want to take the time to get back up to speed again. <laughs> well, and you know, you mentioned the Beetle. I want to go back to uh, just one other racing thing for a moment. Midtown Madness, 1999, the racing game that you were a part of. And you know that players started off with five new vehicles. <laughs> and five more were unlockable and those available vehicles one of them was a volkswagen new beetle as it's known oh by the way a ford f-350 a city bus a freightliner century truck <laughs> i love those racing games yeah you know i think there was something just about the the freedom like that was sort of a pillar of the game experience right it was all about just player freedom and that sense of exhilaration that comes from driving how you want, wherever you want in a city that you recognize. Um, I will tell you that the, we worked very late nights on that game and the, uh, the drive home for all of us when you're, when you're playing that game night and day um, <laughs> is a little perilous. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it, it, um, it had just real enough physics, right? That you could suspend disbelief and really, again, get that personal um, sense of empowerment and freedom. Um, it was a wacky game, uh, but it was also, it. you know, I still have people coming up to me about that game. Streets of Chicago, is that where it was? Yep, we had Chicago. Um, we had a few different versions. I remember, cause back in that day, um, the way you mapped a city is you basically walked the streets and took pictures um, of all of the all of the streets and storefronts. And it was about 105 degrees in the middle of uh, <laughs> Chicago summer uh, when we were when we were capturing photos for that. Amazing. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with video game developer and Halo executive producer Kiki Wolfkill. Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action, use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126. Volume Sirius XM 106 is your 24-7 talk channel about music. Featuring shows hosted by musicians, including Melissa Etheridge. How old were you when you wrote that song, for goodness sakes? Goo Goo Doll singer John Resnick. Do you find yourself being more creative when you're in a darker place? Drummer Steve Jordan. You are in Embedded in American pop culture. Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian. I give a glance to my right and it's Mick Jagger standing next to me. This is Volume Sirius XM 106. Your liner notes to the world of music. Comedy Central Radio brings you the biggest names in comedy. And Monday through Thursday, listen to The Bonfire. It's The Bonfire, everybody. With Big J Okerson and Dan So It is a cavalcade of fun. Children should not be hearing this, but you should if you're an adult. The Bonfire. Every Monday through Thursday, starting at 6 p.m. East. Yeah, feeling great. Pretty crazy. Exclusively on Comedy Central Radio. Sirius XM 95. Back in full effect. I mean, we're all back full effect. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app. Court TV is now on Sirius XM. Hear live gavel-to-gavel coverage, in-depth legal reporting, and expert analysis of the nation's most important and compelling trials, historic live oral arguments from the United States Supreme Court, and relive the trial of the century with OJ25, with new episodes every Sunday night, as well as your favorite Court TV mystery shows, like The First 48, Corrupt Crimes, and Forensic Files. Court TV, your front row seat to justice, online at Channel 793. 
The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now, more of my interview with video game developer and Halo executive producer, Kiki Wolfkill, on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Women in video games. Are the doors open for women today in terms of video game design and, and, and the industry as a whole? They are. are I mean, the doors, they're, they're more open. And I think... I think a lot of the work that has gone into, and so much more work to do, but I think a lot of the work that's gone into trying to get more diversity and more women into gaming over the last um, you know, five years has been, how do we make sure that we're, we're finding women, that we're sourcing candidates, that uh, women and girls understand that video games um, and not just video games, but technology is a viable path. Um, and I think that was sort of the, the thing that the getting the doors open was the first step. And I think the work that's really been happening over the last year or two is how do we make sure we're creating an environment where, where women and diverse candidates can thrive, right? It's not just get them in the door, but what we found is we could get people in the door, but then we would lose them because it wasn't a culture and an environment that felt safe and inviting and um and i think that's a lot of the focus of the of the industry now is it's not just about opening the door it's about you know creating creating the home and the family and the safety um, for it to be a, a place to thrive well in fact you've said that you believe that we have more females that play games than females who develop games mm -hmm. and it's one of your missions to change that so how do, how do we change that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's this virtuous cycle, right? Because the more people you have coming in and making games with diverse backgrounds, the more kind of content they're going to create that appeals, right, to a broader audience. Um, and so it's, it's, I think part of it, and, and I see this positive trend already is, um, the democratization of, of both tools to make games and the ability to get your game out there means that we're actually seeing a lot more sort of indie games and smaller games that are able to take more risks on, on the kind of content that they, um, they focus on. And I think that has really helped for audiences to see that, wow, this is the kind of game I love and the kind of game I can make. You know, for a while, it was always just these huge franchises and these huge blockbuster games that were getting all of the oxygen in the room. And, and, and now that's starting to be really different. So I think, I think players are seeing themselves reflected far more in the games that are being made. And that, again, is that virtuous cycle of it becomes a viable career choice. And the more you have those game makers um, with diverse backgrounds, the more you're going to have games that represent it. You once said uh, about nine or 10 years ago that people felt like game leadership positions should come from production or engineering. And you came from the creative side, from that creative discipline that's originally where you started. You definitely have broken the mold. Uh, there's, there's no question there. And even Microsoft's roots were as a software company, but then learned to become a game company. And that was meaningful to you as well. So let's look at that transition of leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that's that that there are strides that are being made there on in, in terms of skill and development? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think I grew up thinking that you're either creative or you're, you know, a math or science person, right? And and that's actually not true. Like you, I when I was coming up. It, you were always told they were mutually exclusive. Um, and what I discovered through my own path is, is no, actually I can do both. That was the big sort of epiphany for me when I, when I learned about developing video games. 
Microsoft started off as a software company making PC games and decided they wanted to get into console gaming, which is much, um, at the time was much more entertainment focused. It was less about simulators and more about sort of entertainment experiences. And that required uh, a different kind of, of um, creativity, I think, than some of the early games they'd made. So it was a big push. A lot of my early career at Microsoft was spent really elevating art as a discipline and game design as a discipline, um, which frankly, a lot of the other game companies who'd been making games for a long time sort of understood, but this was you know, a big change for a very big company. Um, so I do feel good that the understanding of reaching your, your, your viewers or your players at an emotional level, right, is, is as important, if not the most important, as reaching them at a, at a sort of a, a functional level and what a piece of software can do for you, right? And games is, how does it make you feel? And, and, and that requires both creative leadership and, and creative at the core of the effort. Are there skills from racing that translate to the world that you live in on a daily basis, including design? You're someone who uh, has said in the past that one of your strengths as a driver is that you're really adaptable. Um, <laughs> I want to read back something that you said. When my brakes are going and weather conditions are crap, I'm good at maintaining a level of speed. And part of the game development process, being able to move organically where an experience wants to go. So perhaps they are mm -hmm. transferable. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things that I... You know, and it's hard to say what informs which or if, if I gravitate to both of them for the same reasons, but I think there's really two things with, with the, the car racing that to me, I feel like I bring um, to my work and vice versa. One is being okay with feeling a sense of fear, right? For me, um, not letting fear paralyze me, but be something that actually propels me forward. It's almost like, wow, if this feels scary, this must be something I should be trying to do. Um, I think there's an ability um, to, for me to stay calm when things um, are very chaotic. Um, and I think that's the kind of focus you really need when you're driving, right? All hell can break loose and, and, you can't let, you, you always need some degree of emotion, but being able to stay focused, stay calm, not let emotions um, drive you to decisions you shouldn't make on the track is super critical. And then, yeah, the adaptability, right? I, I um, uh, you know, for me being able to turn the, the, the same lap time as, as, as things go haywire is, um, and, you know, at a time when I was starting when tires cost a lot of money, um, I would keep them on the car until they were starting to cord because I, I didn't want to buy a new set of tires. Um, but yeah, being, being able to be adaptable and not letting changing conditions and the unexpected um, panic me, um, for sure, things that I bring to my, my day to day. I want to ask you a couple of personality questions now. This is not a psychology test, but I do want to get into something that I, that I heard about you. You have been described, this was in a Microsoft piece that was written about you, wonderfully crafted Microsoft piece, that you are both a race car driver and a self-proclaimed shoe-loving girly girl. A creative spirit, a practical problem solver, can enjoy a $30 martini or a cheap beer at a dive bar. Talk to her a while and you get a sense of her gentle disposition, but also but you also come away understanding she could easily pull a page from the master chief playbook and kick your covenant ass. If she so desired, is that accurate? Oh, uh, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm really comfortable with, with duality. Um, and I'm really comfortable having one foot in one place and another, uh, somewhere else. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's my my uh, mixed race background, where you know I have one life, one foot see see uh, one foot in the Chinese side of me and one in the Caucasian side. But um, yeah, I I am very scalable in terms of, and maybe that's because 
I'm the kind of person who really takes the most out of any situation they're in. Like for me, I'm always looking for what is there to enjoy or appreciate about anything. Um, uh, I try to be a good human. Um, and I do, I do believe so much in, in team and collaboration and what people can do together. Um, I'm also, you know, really driven for excellence and, and that goes for, for my teams as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will always push, um, my teams and myself and the people around me to do the best that they very, uh, the best that they can. Because I, I think with that comes the pride of what you've achieved together. Uh, and, and if you're going to, to create these experiences or do those things, you should go into it with the intent for it to be as the very best that it can be. I think you quite literally wear that duality on your sleeve. You have a tattoo of turbulent waves <laughs> and plum blossoms. <laughs> Chaos and calm is the key yeah. way. Is that correct? It is. It is. It's a good reminder for me. Um, you know, I, I, I'm good at modulating emotions. Uh, I also feel them intensely. Um, and so for me, it's always a good reminder to kind of take that moment to, to think about something before I, I act on it. You're a big Formula One fan, right? You enjoyed the conversation that I had with Total Wolf on this. I, it on was this amazing. Show. Amazing. Yeah. What is it that you enjoy about Formula One or about Toto specifically? Yeah. I mean, with Formula One and I, um, you know, I've been watching since the days when I actually had to get up at 4.30 in the morning to watch <laughs> right. it live. <laughs> no DVRs <laughs> then. Yeah, exactly. With your, with your PC doom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's is, It's the highest level of competition. Um, you know, getting back to that competitive spirit, um, I, I love watching great competitors. I love the stories. Um, you know, there's such legend associated with um, Formula One and just that, I mean, that is the pinnacle of, of motorsports. And there's, you know, there, it's like, it's just watching the elite do incredible things um, and the competition that comes with it. And it's so intriguing, like, amazing years and not so interesting years and just sort of that meta of formula one over the last 20 years has been super intriguing to watch. Where do video games go from here? A lot of virtual reality, obviously lately. How does that translate into the future of gaming? Oh, you know, it's interesting because there's, there's so much talk about um, the metaverse and what that means and you know, in some ways, the metaverse exists already in a lot of video game environments, right? If you think about it as a group of people coming together who are represented by digital avatars um, and, and having a, a shared experience, uh, like we're, we're almost there. You know, where, where games goes, uh, VRs and, and AR such interesting ways of interacting with virtual worlds and, and connected to that, the people in them. Um, so there's no question that uh, that will continue to, to grow and expand that way. It's, it's a super exciting space. Um, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of the path of where games is going with cloud gaming, being able to pick up any of your devices, right? And play the game that you want and pick up, you know, the game that you were playing on your couch half an hour ago on your phone, on the bus, right? Like that already is, is a huge sea change um, in accessibility because uh, for a while gaming was all about keeping it so locked down that you could only play on this one device in this one condition. Um, and that's just not how any of us consume anything anymore. We, we all have choice now of what we do on which device and where. And so gaming following suit there and, and you know, farther in the future, that being in an AR, um, VR space um, uh, is kind of incredible to think about. Just a final thing or two here. You, we know you're competitive. Are you hypercritical as well? Will you sit on your couch and watch Paramount Plus and think, wow, oh, that could have been done differently with the TV oh. series? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a, a, a notebook full of things that 
um, you know, uh, I, I want us all to do better the next time, not because, you know, not because there was anything wrong with what we did the first time around, but again, that idea of, of pursuit of mastery, you can't do anything and, and not have it be something that you can improve on. Like there's so much you learn from every experience and you kind of owe it to the, the, the next experience to take those learnings uh, forward. Final thing, Kiki, are you a good gamer? <laughs> I am a good gamer, but, but it is very dependent on, you know, on what I'm doing. I will say I am not great at um, uh, one-on-one competitive first-person shooting. Um, I definitely get a little bit excited, um, but uh, I'm extremely good at racing games. Um, and for me, I love, you know, I love story-based games. So like with a game, um, like Halo, I will play through the campaign multiple times, um, and show up pretty well. But, uh, other than that, uh, in multiplayer, I struggle a little bit, admittedly. There's no way I'm playing you at Forza or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) The new Paramount Plus show is on the airwaves now. It is Halo. Uh, thank you so much, Kiki, for being on Cars and Culture. You've added a lot of culture, and we already know about your passion for cars. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thanks again to Halo executive producer Kiki Wolfkill, and thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram, at Cars and Culture SXM, and on Twitter, at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit, and we'll see you down the road. Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action, use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126. Volume Sirius XM 106 is your 24-7 talk channel about music. Featuring shows hosted by musicians, including Melissa Etheridge. How old were you when you wrote that song, for goodness sakes? Goo Goo Doll singer John Resnick. Do you find yourself being more creative when you're in a darker place? Drummer Steve Jordan. You are embedded in American pop culture. Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian. I give a glance to my right and it's Mick Jagger standing next to me. This is Volume Sirius XM 106. Your liner notes to the world of music. Comedy Central Radio brings you the biggest names in comedy. And Monday through Thursday, listen to The Bonfire. It's The Bonfire, everybody. With Big J Okerson and Dan So It is a cavalcade of fun. Children should not be hearing this, but you should if you're an adult. The Bonfire. Every Monday through Thursday, starting at 6 p.m. East. Yeah, feeling great. Pretty crazy. Exclusively on Comedy Central Radio. Sirius XM 95. Back in full effect. I mean, we're all back full effect. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app.